Good morning again, folks. We're going to the book of Ecclesiastes today as we finish off our series running on empty. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And uh, just to get in the swing of what the book's about, I'll summarize chapter 1 now so you can see where we are going. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is writing about his life and wisdom and what he's learned through his life. And he's He's kind of reflecting on stuff and he says, Hevel, Hevel, it's all Hevel. Now, a lot of Bibles will translate that word Hevel as meaningless. It's meaningless, it's empty. But actually, the word would be better translated as temporary, fleeting. He's saying that the world is like smoke and it seems so, it seems like when you can grab onto it, it just disappears in your hands. So yes, there is goodness and there is beauty and joy in the world, but it's almost impossible to really grab hold of because it's Hevel. It's not solid like you thought. And really, when you come to this chapter, you realize Solomon, for all his wisdom and for all his riches, he's running on empty. He, he's, he says so. He says, look, my life is just Hevel. I'm running on fumes. Nothing's bringing him joy. Nothing's bringing him satisfaction. Nothing's bringing him happiness. There's no momentum in his life. And he feels like it's all, it's all just lacking direction. It's lacking meaning. Now, for most of us, whenever we start to feel like that, or maybe you do feel like that in lockdown, you run to one of four places. Number one, we tend to run to fix ourselves. There's a reason why the number one selling genre of books are self-help books. But the truth is that whether you lose the weight or gain that confidence, whatever it is that, that you hope to achieve, it's not going to last because you're not the answer to the question of satisfaction. So what happens is then when we can't find it within ourselves, we start to look for in others and there's big money in this. Our culture loves us. And so what we do is we put our expectation to satisfy and fulfill onto our friendships or onto our spouse or Lord forgive us our children and we hope that if we find the one they'll make us feel completely whole or if we push our kids and they succeed then we're going to be satisfied but it doesn't work all we do is we crush the people around us under the weight of unfulfilled expectation seriously folks look at your spouse right now I know you love them but come on they're not God they're not going to be able to replace God and making them try to replace God is going to crush them. They're not up to it and it's really unfair. So we feel unhappy in the world. We try to fix ourselves. It doesn't work. We try to put it onto others and it doesn't satisfy. So we run to a third place and it kind of makes it a wee bit tricky because we run to stuff. We'd be happier in a bigger home we ate better food if we had nicer holidays and so what we do is that we fill our lives up with brilliant stuff and it is brilliant but it doesn't last it doesn't really satisfy and i'll argue this people who are not saved will enjoy those things less than a christian will i'll argue this all day long the pleasure in a lot of the things that the world offers doesn't begin and end in those activities in themselves for a believer so imagine someone uh, taking their spouse for a walk you have a nice romantic meal you go home you have a, a, an intimate evening and then you enjoy that moment and you have the memories of those moments 
And that's what they are, but they're not enjoyed until they happen again, or they're only enjoyed as memories. But for the Christian, those things aren't replacing God, but they point us to God. So long after that perfect evening, long after that perfect day, we're still praising God. We are still savoring the goodness of God in letting us experience those things, not just as memories, but we're enjoying it still in real time. So for a lot of people, that doesn't work in terms of satisfying them. So what they do is they run them to religion. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I hate religion. And religious people are among the worst in the world. Because people who throw themselves into religion because nothing else has worked. So they think, well, if I clean up my life. If I earn a sense of being on good terms with God, then I can get rid of the feeling of guilt in my life. But the problem is that religion gets everything backwards. It's an outside to inside movement, which just doesn't work because at the heart of it, religion says, if I can be good enough, if I can improve myself, just like we tried at the first point, then God owes me. He'll have to be nice to me. He'll have to let me into heaven. I've earned that right. But how good is good enough? Who decides whether good is good enough? You? God? Because God says that no one can be good enough. There's none righteous. No, not one. So there's four ways of trying to find satisfaction. And the bad news is that none of them work, or I should maybe say, none of them work for very long. And in Ecclesiastes, we find Solomon is doing this experiment for us that we need to pay attention to. He's going to do an experiment to prove what I've just said. So in chapter one, Solomon, who's king of Israel, explains that he's going to use his wealth, he's going to use his power, he's going to use, you know, that which is beyond anything that we could imagine. He's going to put it all on the line and pursue this idea of pleasure. And then he's going to get back to this and let us know if there's any real value in chasing after it. So in Ecclesiastes 2, first three verses, here's what he says. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless, Hevel. So I said, laughter silly. What good does it do to seek after pleasure? Now, after much thought, I, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I'm going to test pleasure. But to do it, I'm going all out. I'm going to use all my resources, all my time, all my energy, all my creativity to be as hedonistic as I can. And I can't, as much as I've studied this week, get my mind around just the epicness of the parties that Solomon started to throw. I mean, he went after it seven days a week for an extended period of time. No holes barred fun. Now, no one's really how, sure how long he went for, but we know that it was an extended time of epic parties. Now, we've got to be careful here. Comparing ourselves to Solomon and think, well... Solomon didn't quite do it the way I would do it, you know, and I'm saying, you know, he's throwing parties. I know what you're saying, okay, so he party, but did he party? Well, look, let me show you what I mean. If you go to 1 Kings 4, it tells us what he needed just for one party. And for what he needed for one of these parties, in uh, verse 22 of 1 Kings 4, he says, The daily food requirements for Solomon's palace were 150 bushels of choice flour, which is 220 litres for those who use metric. And there's 10 oxen from the fattening pens, 
20 pasture fed cattle, 100 cheaper goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roe deer, and choice poultry. That is some barbecue menu. That is some buffet. So here you've got Solomon here throwing a feast that can feed, according to every commentary that I've looked at, somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people. That is a party. Okay, so that meal that you booked for a dozen people or so, that's not going to impress Solomon. And he would just laugh at it. You know, he would just say, give me a break here. That, that's not a party. He threw these epic series of parties night after night after night after night after night after night. Eventually, he realizes this is boring. It's Hevel. It's repetitive. So he moves on from there. And okay, so he's saying, okay, look, I've got to make something of my life. I'm doing all this partying. I'm doing all this eating of great food and drinking wine and being everybody's mate. I need to make something of myself. And so he moves on. And look, this isn't an accident the way this flows. You're going to see life stages here. Trust me, you're going to see the life stages of how Solomon starts to unpack the pursuit of happiness. He's going to go, okay, I'm moving from the partying scene and I'm going to try and make something for myself. Verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 2, he says, I also try to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. So here Solomon starts leaving the party scene. Now he's still partying some, but his focus now is building a legacy. So he starts to build a house. Now to give you an idea of the scale of the house, the temple, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world, took seven years to build with uh, gold and its precious stones. Seven years to build one of the ancient wonders of the world. Solomon's house, by comparison, took twice as long. 14 years it took to build. So not only does he build himself a house that takes 14 years to build, he builds houses for his wives, all 700 of them. And he's saying, I did that. There's a real sense of accomplishment to that. And there's also something that happens to your soul when you work all day and you build something and you accomplish something. There's something brilliant about a good Hard days, we're coming in afterwards and going, I accomplished something. You know, so I mean, lockdown, I'm sure you've probably all landscaped your gardens about three times now. Um, and everything looks great and you step back and you go, yeah, okay, man, this is this is actually looks somewhere where I, where I could stay for a bit. You know, it's brilliant. And then you sit back, you, sit up, uh, you sip your tea on your decking or whatever. And again, Solomon, not to be undone, says, well, look, I didn't plant a garden. I actually planted a forest. So whatever you've done with your roses and your geraniums, I planted a forest. What are you going to do with your back 900 acres? I'm planting a forest. So once again, Solomon goes above and beyond anything that we can really compare to. And he moves on from this party scene where all he's doing is getting wasted and he's moving on. He's trying to build himself a legacy. He's trying to build his houses. He's trying to build a reputation. And he, again, it doesn't quite satisfy. And he moves on from there to enjoy all that he's built. So look at what's next. Again, how life progresses. After the career, what do you do? You try to take it easy. So we leave the party scene. And we leave the building scene. And now we have this building scene of life, of wealth and ease. Verses 7 and 8 says that the staff that he brought in, the hire to do everything for him, singers and everything. And what he's saying is, like, listen, I had slaves and slaves of slaves, and the servants of slaves, and of the slaves, slave. look, I didn't do anything for myself. I woke up about 11 o'clock, 
somebody cooked breakfast this morning. Someone chewed it up for me and put it in my mouth. I was fed like a little bird. I moved on from there, got massage number one, went on to get my facial, the pedicure. I had people to do this stuff for me. So I saying, like, I didn't lack for anything and I didn't do anything by myself. It was done for me. I sat back and I enjoyed everything I had accomplished. So it's like I had a cattle ranch, I had a horse ranch, I took advantage of my wealth, my clout, my power, and I had people running it for me. And, and he goes on to even say, look, I didn't even download the music if I liked it. I just bought the band. That's what he's like. I don't own a music player. I own the band. That's how he did it. He just had a live concert every day for whatever musician he wanted. And that isn't even what he's famous for, is it? Because now he gets into what he's really infamous for. He gets into women. Now, Solomon and 700 Wives, I don't even know how he began to do that, if I'm honest. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines at his beck and call. Solomon experienced in his life uninhibited sexuality. He made Hugh Hefner look like a rookie. If you were, you know, if you rolled up to the Playboy Mansion and saw Hugh's six blonde girlfriends, and Solomon goes, six? Come on, I married six in April." I mean, this was a man who had uninhibited sexual experiences. He did whatever. So, what's his conclusions into all this lifestyle? What's what's the results of this lifestyle experiment and the pursuit of happiness? Verses 9 to 11, we start to get the results of the feedback of becoming popular, of having denied himself nothing. Here's the results. Verse 11, he says, But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all hevel, meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. So he never forgot what this experiment was all about from day one. So if you're sitting there going, hmm, experiment. I think I might try that experiment myself. Listen, you don't need a part two to this, okay? The experiments happened. Uh, Ecclesiastes already exists, okay? So anything that you're doing is just sin because you know the results here because it's in the Bible already. You don't need to reinvent the wheel here. So let's keep reading. There are some things in here that you're just not going to like, especially if you've grown up in church because what he says is really that this party scene, I had a great time. The building of houses and the acquisition of material stuff. I had a great time. Plunk in the forest. Loved it. The wives, the women, the sex, the servants, the horses, the music. I had a great time. I had an amazing time. See, sometimes Christians are told by the church that all these things are just, they're just at an every level. Bad. Sinful. There's only pain to be found. But Solomon says, actually, I had a good time. I did find pleasure, but what I found was that it wasn't lasting pleasure. It wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And I still felt like I was missing something. It was Havel. It felt like something I could have grasped, but it was like chasing the wind. His point is that when he's throwing these parties and he's having a blast, I mean, that first night and they're bringing the cows in and they're slaughtering them and everything's on the barbecue pit and there's wine flowing and the comedians are doing stand-up and the band's playing. He's having a great time. That's Monday. Tuesday, it's great. Wednesday, third night in a row, they're loving it. Thursday, it's a wee bit redundant. They're like, okay, we need to go bigger. So they go a little bit bigger on Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And then Sunday felt like, okay, we've done this before. We need to go bigger still. We need to go bigger still. 
So they grow a little bit bigger and a little bit grander and they get more wine in and they get more food in and they get more uh, runchy and they get more all sorts of things. And, and then so they do it again and then on Tuesday night on, and it keeps going back until they can't physically make the parties any bigger. And they hit this huge level where they can't do anything more. They can't bring in another band. They can't bring in any more uh, performers. They can't bring in any more wine or any more food or any more entertainment. They can't physically do it. And then it gets predictable. And it gets boring. And it becomes a rut. And so he says, like, this is lame. We need to move on to something else. So he starts building the houses. Starts set, settling down. For 14 years he works on his house, builds all his other wives, their houses, and again he digs the pools, puts in the forest, all the rest of it. Tries relaxing, he tries chilling out, he tries letting other people do it, he tries that early retirement phase of life. It doesn't satisfy him. It doesn't work. And so as soon as he gets into it, he pushes it as far as he can, further than you and I could ever do it. And it doesn't work. There's only so many massages you can have. There's only so many rounds of golf. There's only so many forests you can plant. And even with the woman, one woman doesn't satisfy, so he goes to another one, to another one, to another one, to another one. And then what's going to make a difference? You know, if you have a thousand women, is a thousand one really that much more? It's a thousand what's the difference? Solomon did not like for shape for eye colour, for hair colour, for personality. Solomon ran out of fantasies. Okay, are you tracking with me on that? Anything that he thought up in his head, he could have done. He did do. And he plays it all out. And he's done everything. And he's going to say he's back in the same place where he was before he even started. Life now is boring. It's predictable. And it's frustrating. Because it's still incomplete. And this is where we need to have the talk. Because if you're not a Christian uh, uh, you don't believe in Jesus uh, and you haven't been in church in years and what you're hearing is what I'm saying is that Solomon is saying what you've already thought Christians have said for years and that's like God's in heaven and he's just this killjoy, an enemy of pleasure. He's up there saying, no, you have to be boring. You have to be bored. You have to listen to kind of cheesy music that isn't just quite as good as all the other music that's out there. That's how I roll. I have no creative ideas for you. You kind of just have to mimic the creativity of other people, you know, and so you can have spirit t-shirts instead of Sprite and you can mess around with those things, but you're really just doomed to live in this little bubble of boredom with slightly lower standards than the rest of the world. And the irony of that to me is that God is the author of every good thing. It was like his idea. I don't know when it happened. I don't know how it happened when all of a sudden God became the enemy of happiness, of joy and delight. He's the author of these things. It's his idea. He's the author of these things, not the enemy of it. I don't know when he became this killjoy. When it's not, when there's not one pleasure under the sun that he did not create or ordain. Now, a lot of those things have definitely been perverted by sin. But I would contend that as humans, we are created and wired for pleasure. There's a deep longing in the core of who we are that cries out for happiness and delight. We pursue it from day one. 
babies are the perfect example of this. From the second they are born, they desire and seek their own happiness alone, all right? Whether it's 2 a.m., 4 a.m., the middle of the afternoon, church service, prayer meeting, it doesn't matter. Give me the bottle. I want nursed. I want my nappy changed. Give me some food. Entertain me. Dance for me. Dance for me now. You're going to do it. You will entertain me. And the funny thing is that never changes. We don't grow out of it. The things that make us happy changes, but the pursuit of happiness doesn't change. It just looks different the older that we get. But the pursuit is always the same. We seek our own happiness, our own pleasure. It's the motivating factor behind everything that we do. Always. Everything that we do is motivated by a pursuit of happiness. Whether it's careers or families or holidays, I mean, even at the darker end of things, people wage wars and kill because they have a pursuit of happiness. Wars, economies are all built on the notion of, of, of trying to make ourselves happy. And what do we do with Solomon then? What do we do who pursues pleasure with all his might and then comes back and says, guys, it's not actually all it's cracked up to be. It's like chasing the wind. What do we do then? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. And if you're a believer... I think you should own that book and I think you should read that book. Um, in The Weight of Glory, he, he writes about looking for pleasure and he says this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. See, so God, according to C.S. Lewis, is saying, okay, he, God's not looking at us and thinking, oh man, I can't believe they're looking for their own pleasures. He Rather, C.S. Lewis says, God's looking at us and going, guys, you're not looking hard enough. And then here comes the famous part of, it, of that quote. Because Lewis then goes on to say, see, we're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go make, on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When sin enters the world and fractured it, Romans 1 says, What happened is that you and I exchanged the creator God for his creation. Instead of someone, we settle for something. And when that took place, we began to settle for temporary fleeting pleasures rather than what is eternal and soul-satisfying. Let me prove it to you this way. Ten years ago, you probably had a ten-year plan for where you'd want to be. You set out a plan for the 2010s and you decide what you're going to accomplish, okay? So maybe you're going to finish school. Maybe it was about getting married. Maybe it was about having kids or whatever it happened to be. You had all these plans set out. And whether you did it consciously or subconsciously, you had an idea in 2010 of where you'd be in 2020. Now, most of you probably just thought, man, like, listen, if I could just get out of school, if I could just do that, then I'd be happy enough. And you begin to work on that 10-year plan. But the reality is that you've met those goals and you probably don't realize it because you got about three years in to that 10-year plan and you started to change it already. And then, you know, because what was happening was you weren't being satisfied, so the, you moved the goalposts. And then in 2015, you maybe were at a meeting or, or something else and, and something happened and goes, okay, I'm going to set a new goal. I'm setting a new plan. I'm going to set a new destiny. And then you get two years in because either you're destined to fail or just it's not working. And all of us, whether we'd like to admit it or not, have bought into the philosophy that what we need to finally make us happy 
is more of what we already possess and it's madness. It's why we shop. How many people replace their car every three, four years, whether it's broken or not? There's enough of us doing it. Or, or we don't buy clothes because ours are done. I mean, I, I promise you, you don't. Nobody eh, eh, listening to this is going, oh man, I really can't wear my jeans at all anymore. They're completely disintegrated. They're falling apart. No, what happens is we, we well, we have to order online now, but generally speaking, what we do is we go into the shop and we buy, spend 60 quid on a pair of jeans that are already slightly disintegrated with half holes on them or whatever, or, or, or faded and we buy them. But what it really is, is we're pursuing happiness. There's that little buzz that comes from buying something of a new toy, of new clothes, a new outfit. We call it retail therapy because it just releases that little spark of joy. I'm saying we because we all do it. And it's just proof that we have these boring, predictable lives and we numb it down. We numb that pain by acquisition, a new toy to distract us for just a little bit of time. And Solomon is screaming at us from Ecclesiastes and saying, look, I did it. And here's the deal. It doesn't work. You live like that, you're going to run on fumes, just like me. Okay, so why? Why is all this happening? Well, Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Now, that's a, an abstract idea, so follow me, because I don't know really how to fully explain it to you, but I believe it with all my heart, and I believe that Scripture contends that this is correct. So, what the text, I, I think, means to say that God has placed eternity into our hearts is that at some level, in the deepest part of our souls, our souls remember, however that happens, what life was like before the fall. We have an inclination as to what life should have been like, what it used to be like before sin. And so the soul, at a really deep level, has this groove cut into it where it remembers what it was like before sin came into the world. And we instinctively know, then when we have all this stuff coming at us, and I should be more satisfied than this. I should be happier than this. And the problem is that the groove is shaped like eternity. And all that we have to fill it is temporary. And so we're cramming it with all this stuff, with all these pleasures and fleeting joys. And it's not fitting the gap. Because stuff's never going to fit the groove because it's never going to be big enough. And here's why I'm afraid for so many in our church and who are listening to this. You see, Solomon got to the end of all his goals. He was able to throw everything at it and say, there's not, no next level I can take this to. And I know it's vanity. But why I'm afraid for you is that we're still going to get caught in that trap of thinking, but there's another level I could go to. And if I get to that next level, then I'll be happy. If I can push it a wee bit more. See, we don't have the resources Solomon had. And I think that's where maybe a lot of us get tripped up. My fear is that you're going to spend the rest of your life chasing your tail, chasing after more of what you already have, more of the stuff that hasn't brought you lasting happiness as it is. All right, one of my favourite stories in the Gospels is the is in John 4. And Jesus goes through Samaria, which is strange because nobody would really normally want to go through Samaria. And he ends up at a well and this woman shows up. She showed up in the middle of the day because if she went in the morning, she probably got beat up. Okay, she's a social outcast. And she shows up in the middle of the day and Jesus says, look, get me a drink of water. Scoops up the water 
and uh, she's kind of freaked out that this guy from Israel's talking to her, hands in the water, and he start takes a drink and he starts talking to her about water. And he says, you know, I'm going to drink this, but I'm going to get thirsty again. Says, well, do you want another drink then? <laughs> no, no. By the way, this is all a paraphrase, okay? <laughs> but he starts talking to her about this water. And he says, look, you know, the people who were here this morning, they'll have to come back tomorrow because they're going to be thirsty again. They're going to need more tomorrow. He says, but I can give you a water that isn't going to make you thirsty again. I'm offering you something that will bring you, uh, that's going to quench your thirst forever. And she just misses it. Okay, she's like, you know, if you remember the story, she's like, look, you don't even have a cup, you know. You asked me for a drink here, and you're telling me you've had the special water this whole time. But what Jesus was saying to her was, look, I'm eternal. I fill that groove. So all these men that have taken advantage of you over the years, all the people that belittle you, all the women that look down their noses at you, you've ended up with this broken life and you feel worthless and you've got shame and you've got guilt but that can be over because i can fill that groove i can fill eternity i've always been i will always be i'm eternal i and i alone can fill the groove come to me and you will never be thirsty again isaiah if he was here he would say well how long do i have to keep asking you all right, this is what he says in Isaiah 55. How long are you going to buy bread that doesn't satisfy? How long are you going to drink wine that doesn't make you thirsty or that makes you more thirsty? How long are you going to keep doing the same things over and over and over and over and over and over again until you finally figure out that it doesn't satisfy? And then he goes with this invitation, the same invitation that echoes from the woman at the well. Come, buy from me. Come eat my bread, come drink my wine, come sit at my table, partake of the richest affair, come and be filled. Now, I agree, it's all a wee bit ambiguous, isn't it? I mean, this is one of those things that you hear and what does it actually mean? Here's the takeaway. Think about people running on a treadmill. They probably have headphones on, so they've got music on and they can pretend that they're somewhere else. For a few minutes, it helps us forget that although we're running, we're not actually going anywhere. And I know for some of you, you don't like this, but know that I love you. I don't really care that you don't like it, but here's the bottom line. You can take that step and come to Christ, or you can stay on this treadmill and keep being hypnotized that think that your life is going forward when it's going nowhere. In the end, there is nothing under the sun that brings lasting fulfillment. You have to go beyond the sun. The groove can't be filled with what's temporal. It has to be eternal. And the invitation from Jesus continues to echo through eternity. Come and thirst no more. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would begin even now to sear into our minds and our hearts what that one thing is. I pray, Father, that you would cement and sear into the deep parts of our heart a step to one step off the treadmill. Just that, take that one step. Maybe it's starting to come back to church. Maybe it's about joining a small group. Maybe it's finally coming clean about the double lives that we're leading. Whether that means we have to confess that we're addicted to things. Maybe it means we have to go to counselling. 
Lord, I don't know what that step is for some, but I pray that it would be enough of a that would be enough of a heinous to take that step. Lord, we thank you for the unblushing promises of Scripture that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, that we can come all who are weary, come all who are tired. And I pray, Father, that you let the skills fall off the eyes of those who are running mad on the treadmill and going nowhere. Lord, I pray that the futility that so many of us find ourselves in would be exposed. And that list of goals that we're so violently pursuing right now and are only going to lead us to a new set of goals that we'll violently pursue, that will only lead us to the next set of goals. Lord, show us the meaninglessness of this. Open our hearts, Lord. Help us to understand. May there be great conversations in people's homes tonight about what needs to happen about what that next step has to be. I pray that friends would email one another and say, look, what's your step going to be this week? I pray that there would be accountability among friends. What, what's, what, what's your step going to be this week? Lord, that we would step off the treadmill and step towards you. I pray from the top down, Lord, <coughs> that we would just say that we want to get serious about our pursuit of Jesus, who alone can be our lasting joy. I thank you that you're not the enemy of pleasure, but the author of it. And you bring depth and beauty to all life, even suffering. I pray, Lord, that we would get that. Lord, we thank you for this book of, of your word. As hard as it is, as much as it exposes and attacks us, I thank you for it and pray that with it, Lord, you'll increase our joy. And it's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen.